You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, it is very good to see you again. Hey, nice seeing you. Uh, it's a well, different background, do you notice? Yeah, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second. Um, this, of course, is the Sophia program, and I welcome uh, our viewers. Um, uh, and um, Massimo uh, is currently uh, in Rome. Uh, and um, Massimo, I thought before we started, maybe you should say just you know a few minutes about what you're doing in Rome, why you're in Rome, um, uh, and uh, and and uh, what's what's and been happening. Get down at thirty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm uh, I'm in the middle of my sabbatical at this point, and I figured that uh, four months of that uh, I will spend in Rome. Uh, the sabbatical, the main project of the sabbatical, is to write this book aimed at a sort of a general audience on uh, ancient and modern stoicism. And the book is particularly, and you know, we talked about uh, stoicism a couple of times before. Uh, the the conceit of the book basically is that it's an ongoing, indirect conversation between me and Epictetus. Uh, one of the major uh, Greek Roman Stoics. And so I figured, well, uh, I can write anywhere in the world. I'm writing about Roman Stoicism. I might as well be in Rome, uh, which has, of course, the added advantage of uh, seeing my family, which is nice on a re more regular basis. But um, And it's nice because I, I actually was able to get an apartment literally three minutes from the Colosseum. So when I oh run out of uh, inspiration, I just go down and have a walk. Uh, in front of the, you know, the, the Roman Forum, and, and then everything comes back together. What's the time schedule for the book? When, when, when are you supposed to be done? When is it supposed to come out? I mean, obviously that may all change, but what's the sure. plan schedule? Uh, since, since it's not an academic book, uh, it's going to be published in the United States by Basic Books, uh, which is a, a publisher in New York. It's actually a fairly tight schedule. I'm supposed to be done with the first draft by the end of June, which is when I'm going to leave Rome. Oh, boy. Uh, and then, yeah, then the final draft uh, is supposed to be delivered to the publisher at the end of August. Uh, and uh, I think they're already scheduling publication. Uh, even though I've written only about a third of the book. But they're already scheduling publication for uh, March or April of, of uh, next year. Okay, so, so not... Amazing! <laughs> it's just they're, they're actually working on the cover right now. It's wow. Like, That's not like academic publishing at all. Not at all. <laughs> because there's actual money at stake, right? I mean, <laughs> so you have to say one thing about this remarkable wall behind you, and then we'll get yep. started. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're broadcasting from my brother's um, home, and he's a collector of all sorts of stuff that, that is connected with comic books and superheroes and things like that. And so he has a wall, uh, which is behind me, with all sorts of pictures of Marvel, DC, and other uh, uh, you know characters. And uh, it's a very colorful uh, wall, and probably our viewers can sort of you know eventually zoom in and see if they can recognize some of the characters behind me. That's awesome. I have to say also, Massimo, that you you're letting your hair grow out a little bit, and I have to say it looks really good. Ah, <laughs> you don't like it? <laughs> uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll check with my partner. <laughs> All right, so today, um, our, our subject today has grown out of an on and off argument you and I have been having across various boards on the, uh, in the interwebs and um, about ethical eating. And um, I, was, I originally had been sort of harping on ethical veganism, but you wanted to expand the target uh, to, to encompass ethical eating more generally, which right. is more than fine for me. Um, so we're going to talk about ethical eating, and we're also going to talk, it's going to lead us naturally to talk a little more broadly 
about the role that morals should play in our lives relative to other considerations. Um, and so, um, why don't we, since you're the one who, since, since you have been doing this, why don't you talk a little bit about how you understand ethical eating and um, what sort of led you to uh, start ethically eating, so to speak? Yeah. So, first of all, I, I should say what I mean by that. So, yes. ethical eating is a, a spectrum of positions, right? So, at one extreme, I suppose, there is vegetarian, uh, sorry, veganism. Uh, or, or even uh, uh, more radically than that, probably those people that only eat, you know, sort of roots and things like that. So, in other words, things that are actually even uh, uh, damage a, a plant. So, things, you know, fruits that come out of the plant uh, on their own. That's that's fairly extreme. I don't know many people that do that. Uh, the most common uh, sort of extreme on on one side of the distribution uh, type of ethical eating uh, is veganism, of course, which right, means that right. you eat. Uh, uh, products that have nothing to do with animals at all, either directly, uh, like meat or, fi or, or fish, or indirectly, like eggs or cheese or things like that. Right? Right, right. Then a little more mainstream is vegetarianism, of course, where you do eat things like cheese and, and uh, eggs, uh, especially if they're well sourced. In other words, you tend to do, eat things that are, you know, eggs that are from free ranging uh, chickens, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, then there is a number of other positions. You know, you can be, be a little less um, sort of out there in, in a sense and be a pescatarian. So let's say, you know, you, you refuse to eat meat because of the way in which uh, uh, animals are usually treated, but you're okay with eating fish as long as it is, let's say, wild caught, as long as it's not a species that is, uh, uh, you, know, you know, risking uh, extinction and things like that. Or you can do what I do uh, at this point in the situation that I'm sort of settled after having explored actually uh, a number of these. I've, I've actually behaved as a vegetarian and as a pescatarian, never as a vegan. I just couldn't get all, all that far. Um, but um, the situation that I have now, that I settled on now, is what I call sort of a generic uh, uh, ethical, omnivor ethical omnivory uh, or ethically informed omnivory, mean, meaning that in theory I eat anything or close to it, let's say. I, I don't eat human beings. Um, but, um, but other than that... <laughs> you have to tell us that. We, you know. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. so, they do yeah, strange you know, things in Italy, right? We, we need to... <laughs> um, so I don't... I, I eat pretty much anything, but I try to pay, pay as much attention to uh, where what I eat comes from and what sort of impact uh, it has had and, uh, from an ethical perspective, and that doesn't mean just the obvious. Like, you know, if I eat meat, I eat meat very rarely. But if I do, I rather be either animals that have been wild caught, for instance, uh, or animals that have been really, really well treated and you know, and 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 sort of killed humanely and that sort of stuff. But it's in fact very rare that I that I eat meat. Um, but it's not just that; it's also an environmental impact, uh, right? So, as I said before, if I eat fish, I pay attention to. Well, is this a species that is going extinct? If so, I'd rather not. Like whales, for instance. When I was in Iceland, I did not uh, eat whales, even though it's common uh, fare over there. Um, and I also tried, for as much, again, as much as possible, because as you, as you know, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about this in a little bit, it's really complicated. Once you start paying attention to these things, the, the, the number of, of uh, sources uh, that you need to pay attention to and the number of variables, are, it's very high. And also, it's not always quite clear uh, who is right about what? There are very comp It's not quite as simple as saying, "Oh, I'm a vegetarian, therefore there is no problem," because right. a vegetarian diet also in, uh, uh, incurs environmental impacts and so on and so forth. So, 
Um, but I try to pay attention to also the um, sort of the human side of things. Right. So, uh, for instance, is the food that I eat, uh, you know, come from sources where the labor itself, the human labor, is well treated? Or, you know, the, the obvious example is you go to a, a coffee house that does, you know, not only organic coffee, but actually it's fair trade, things like that. If I can. I mean, I don't go... Uh, all the way and and sort of sort of you know unless it it's it meets uh, unless the what I eat or drink meets all of these criteria I'm not going to do it because otherwise my life will be really complicated and you know very very difficult. But other things consider if I can if I have a choice and I can make that choice and even if it costs me a little more or if it takes uh, a little longer of a walk to get to the you know the the coffee place that uh, meets my criteria better then then I do it. Okay, so before we move on to the why, let's let me just um, focus a little more on the what. So um, something you said a little earlier on was that um, you 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 played with pescatarianism, and did you say you also played with vegetarianism a little bit? Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, and and the way you described why you didn't stick with that was sort of a sort of sort of a well, I just couldn't go that far. Um, right. But I does that mean that um, you wish you could? In other words. Do, do you think that the vegan does represent a sort of ideal? Um, it's just not one that you can, it's just not one you can reach. The reason I ask this is because one of the arguments that we had started off with you saying that you admire vegans. Right. And I said I didn't. Right. And then we started having a whole argument about that. And I know you're not a vegan. And so right. I'd like to know, in a sense, how you think about the more extreme versions that you don't yourself practice. I have an analogy, and if you don't mind, um, uh, I'll go back to stoicism as an analogy. Sure. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is because if you remember, when we talked about stoicism, um, at some point we said that Epictetus, who is the guy that I'm writing a book about, right, who was a stoic, uh, actually has a chapter in his discourses where he says, you know, ideally you would want to be a cynic, but if you can't be a cynic, at least be a stoic. And, of course, the cynics, like Diogenes, um, uh, where those people that really were extreme um, uh, in the you know, extreme in their philosophizing, they they they, they had no property. Uh, they went around essentially begging. Uh, they had a very very simple life. And Epictetus and a number of other Stoics, but Epictetus in particular, thought that that was the highest possible uh, degree of commitment basically you could have. Right. And, but then he realized, you know, not many people can do that. So at least be a Stoic. Now my situation with veganism is different. Uh, I don't think that veganism is the high, the peak of, of ethical commitment. Uh, but I do think that it does make it easier if you do want to be uh, uh, sort of an ethical eater, then cutting off as much stuff as possible made, makes it easier on in terms of in terms of uh, achieving your goal, right? Because you don't have to think about anymore about, oh, well, where's the meat coming from? Or where's the... Uh, the eggs and where is the cheese coming from? What, what, what's all of that stuff is gone? You simplify your life uh, remarkably from that perspective. However, it also costs you, I think, or it, it costs most people a lot more in terms of effort and in terms of you know sort of focus and sticking with it and that sort of stuff because it's actually you know the options in terms of what to actually eat are significantly reduced. Uh, compared to what most people um, uh, have, when you go to a dinner party, you you know it's really going to be difficult. When you go to a restaurant, it's going to be difficult, and so on. Especially if you don't live in places like New York, right. uh, where you know there is a lot of people that actually gather to that. So I don't think that I have necessarily the 
highest moral ground, meaning that you can be, I think, a, even an ethical omnivore and be consistent in what you do and, and reduce environmental impact and make sure that, the, you know, that, that you make the right choices and be perfectly fine. Uh, in fact, it's more than fine. You're perfectly defensible from an ethical perspective. But it is also much more complicated. And so if you're an ethical omnivore, you're much more likely to make missteps just simply out of misinformation or lack of proper information or something. Because your universe, your culinary universe, your diet universe is much more complicated than that of a vegan. So, so the ethical vegan, you think the only real advantage, the ethical, the only w way in which the ethical vegan is more morally advanced than the ethical omnivore um, is from a sort of prudential perspective. That is that the ethical vegan is less likely to make mistakes because they've categorically um, closed off an entire area of, or do you think that there is something morally more admirable in the person who goes as far as the ethical vegan? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I think that's the, it's the first scenario that you brought up. But then again, that's just my opinion. If you talk to most vegans, they would disagree. No, no, I, I realize that. And, and, and I want to be careful to, to distinguish whether you and I have a disagreement about what you've chosen versus right. where you and I might have a disagreement about what other people have chosen towards which you might have a more favorable attitude than I have, right? Correct. Exactly. That's right. And those are important distinctions. So, so um, for instance... I think that most vegans, at least certainly the ones that I know and the, one that I, the ones that I read about, most vegans would say that it is simply ethically unacceptable to eat animals, period, to kill an animal for, uh, for food, period. Right. In that sense, obviously, if you agree with that position, then veganism is, in fact, the peak of, right. uh, uh, you know, from a moral perspective, from an ethical perspective. Since I actually don't happen to think that, I don't think there are very good arguments for that. Okay. I think that if an animal, especially because we're talking about animals that actually don't live normally in the wild anyway. They're domesticated. They're, yeah, yeah, domesticating yeah. animals that wouldn't even exist if it were not for uh, human intervention and management. Um, I think that given that, um, I really don't see, it, it, don't see much of an ethical problem in sort of eating meat as long as, as I said before, you know, so the animal is well treated, it has a decent life, uh, it's been killed in a certain way, and so on and so forth. But that, again, is, I think, that's a, that's a substantial disagreement with most vegans in terms of, that I have with most vegans, with what, in terms of what is ethical or not. That said, I do think that from a prudential perspective, vegans um, have, on the one hand, a, let's say a clearer moral choice. It's, it's, in, in, a, in a sense, it's easier to be, to be ethical if you're a vegan. But on the other hand, they also have a much more complicated life in terms of sort of practical perspective. Okay, so, so let's now get to the why, and, and this strikes me as really important because, you know, one of the things I'm wondering, and that'll come up later, is whether you're on a kind of a position that's very difficult to sustain. In other words, um, um, depending on what your reasons are for why you've chose to ethically eat in the way that you have, I might ask whether um, you really, you really are, ought to be an ethical vegan, right? In other words, depending on what the reasons are. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what your reasons are for the for not just ethical eating in general, but the form of ethical eating that you've settled upon. Well, my reasons are so. So I found myself in, a, in an interesting situation, especially as a philosopher. So for a long time, you know, a number of years, um, I read arguments uh, against eating meat uh, by either vegetarians or vegans. Um, you know, including people like Peter Singer, if we want to sort of go for the big names straight straight away, right? And I always found them intellectually 
compelling. I always found, I said, yeah, sure. You know, if I can avoid to cause suffering and death in order to eat uh, without, you know, starving myself or without making life for myself so difficult that it's really my quality, my own quality of life is going to go down significantly, then why, you know, it's hard for me to come up. It was always hard for me to come up with a, uh, with a good argument against it. And yet I kept being a regular, regular uh, eater. Yeah. Omnivore, right. Yeah. And, and so that sort of over the years that created, we're not talking many years, but over the years that created sort of an increasing cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. about this sort of stuff. So one day I made uh, an experiment with myself and I said, okay, I think what's going on here is that intellectually, I think I understand the argument, but I cannot relate to it in an, in a, in an emotional and a deeper perspective. I just can't bring myself to make the, you know, make the decision, take the step. So I got a, one of these documentaries about treatments of animals and yeah. I forced myself to watch it. I think you told me this. Yeah. You forced yourself, you subjected yourself to propaganda. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, I picked one that I knew, I mean, I read reviews of course, and I picked one that wasn't really probably, meaning I, I picked one of the best ones. I picked one of the ones that actually were depicting, you know, because again, as I was saying earlier, maybe we should go there back there at some point. You got to be careful because the sources of information, you know, if you just start Googling, yeah, it's a mess or whatever, it's a mess out there. You know, there are, there are very good arguments actually on both sides because it is very complicated. For instance, like just let me open a parenthesis, an article that made me pause a few, uh, um, a few months ago was, uh, one by a biologist, uh, as you know, you know, part of my background is, is, is in biology and say, well, you know, it's all well and good to be vegetarian but you do re- realize that that means that we're now deforesting a bunch of you know areas of the of, of the planet we're incidentally killing a lot of wildlife as a result so are you sure that you know on balance you're really helping out even even from this straight perspective of you know environmental and animal welfare it's, it's not quite that clear you can start making calculations the calculations are difficult to do in terms of you know how many wild animals lose their habitat for instance as opposed to how many cows let's say uh, you kill as a as an omnivore so it's really not not that easy but what i did was i did my research i i watched one of the best documentaries and of course as i fully expected it was really horrifying it, it, it's not it's not it's not pretty it's not a pretty sight and you, you that, don't want to see how they make sausage, basically. That's just that's right. Exactly. As they said, you don't want to know how they make sausage. Yeah, you really don't. Um, and that actually, uh, to, you know, sort of made the, made, made the, uh, did the trick. Uh, and that's what really sort of, that I internalized. Uh, I, I, I put in balance basically at the same level my emotional response and my intellectual sort of cognitive response. And ever since, this was, you know, three or four years ago. Ever since I've been actually sticking with, uh, I've been tweaking around things. Yeah, you know, as uh, as I said, you know, going more or less vegetarian, or more or less sort of piscatarian or whatever. But I think I reached a good balance that it seems to me at this point is sustainable, um, in the sense that a it doesn't seem to dramatically affect my quality of life. Um, you know. There's plenty of stuff that I can eat that is very nice and very so I can cook a lot. I like cooking, and so I can I can deal with it very easily from a practical perspective. Uh, but also, uh, it, it seems to me that I ma- that I can manage the sort of the information flow, flow and adjust things uh, without becoming obsessed about it. I mean, one of the things that uh, 
that you occasionally find at least this this was one of the things you were reacting to on our, during our discussion online, which I've experienced myself, is that sometimes you do find vegetarians and especially vegans who tend to be sort of literally preachy about it and and somewhat intolerant about. Uh, you know, other people's habits. I have not found, I know a lot of veg vegetarians who are not like that, uh, but I've occasionally encountered that. And that is in fact a turnoff, like any, anybody who preaches to you in a moralizing perspective, I think it's a, it's, it's not a good thing for, for, uh, in general. So, but I've encountered that only rarely. And so I've been able to deal with, uh, my decision without too much cost. I mean, it's probably costing me a little bit more in terms of money, uh, and a little bit more in terms of time, but nothing that I cannot handle. Right. Um, but it sounds to me like, so the reasons you gave sound to me like they're broadly speaking uh, uh, utilitarian. I mean, they're broadly speaking, to, I'm not saying that you are a utilitarian. I'm saying the, right, right, re right. the reasons you gave. The no, otherwise we're done. You know, the, the, cons done. the considerations that you've given are essentially utilitarian ones. In other words, you're not coming at this from the perspective of someone like a Tom Reagan who, who, who comes at the question from a, a Kantian, a quasi-Kantian perspective uh, that in a sense you're violating the autonomy and the rights and the, and, and the dignity of the animal. It's more you're concerned with welfare, uh, matters of welfare, broadly speaking, both suffering uh, and death. Um, right. um, would that yeah, be I fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, with one caveat that I'll get to in a moment. Uh, I think it's a good observation, however, perhaps those – some of those vegans and vegetarians that, that I mentioned uh, bef before, maybe they are actually coming at it from a more deontological perspective, whether, whether they realize it or not. Uh, you know, they may or may not think in terms of in explicitly explicit uh, philosophical terms. But, um, yeah, maybe that's what they're, I mean, because if somebody says, you know, no, no matter what, killing or suffering or making uh, animals suffer for eating is wrong, period. It's, it's, it's non-negotiable. It seems to me like that is a deontological position. I mean, what do you mean, no matter what? Uh, you know, really, you cannot imagine any situation under which that would be acceptable. Uh, I, I, I can easily imagine situations under which that could be acceptable, right? Now, going back to the utilitarian perspective, so as you know, uh, as a sort of general philosophy of life, I, I, I consider myself a virtual ethicist. Right. One of the, the uh, misconceptions about virtue ethics in general, I'm not accusing you of this, uh, but, but I've noticed that this is, this is definitely the case, is that um, people somehow think that virtue ethics has nothing to do with either duties or consequences, right? Yeah, so it, because wrong. people typically associate sort of duties with ontology uh, and, and consequences with utilitarianism. And so as, as soon as a virtue ethicist, you start saying things like, well, I think I have a duty toward you know, reducing suffering, or I think I, in terms of practical matters, I, I really do this rather than that, immediately say, aha, you're not a virtuatist, you're really a deontologist, or you're, you're really a utilitarian. Uh, I mean, that's a misconception. I mean, virtue ethics is not about specific uh, right and wrong, you know, decisions about right and wrong, and it's not about specific tools, it's about character, right? It's, it's about... Um, uh, building your character in a broadly con uh, construed ethical ethical way, and therefore from there, the idea is that you know good decisions or the best decisions that are practically possible come out. So it's obvious that a, a virtuetist will sound at times like a utilitarian, or even sometimes like a deontologist. Sure, sure, um, yeah. Without yeah. necessarily being either either one of them. Right to the extent to which the virtue ethicist is concerned with moral virtue, 
sometimes moral virtue is going to involve you know, uh, utilitarian considerations. It's going to exactly. consider considerations of harm or damage, or and sometimes it's going to consider con, uh, you know consider uh, Kantian, roughly Kantian uh, considerations like uh, violation of people's autonomy and the like. And so I don't, see, of course, I don't see anything incompatible uh, between those sorts of considerations and um, um, a virtue ethical, uh, a, a virtue ethic. Um, I would say, however, I mean, I mean, maybe I want to push this a little bit. I mean, you know, if you think that um, questions of welfare, suffering, and death are serious moral considerations, right? Yep. Then why isn't it fair to ask you? Um, well, but then aren't those very important considerations? And how could something like your convenience at a dinner party override that. Right. Yeah, it's fair to ask. Uh, but but if you do make if you do ask that question, you sort of begin to sound like Peter Singer, and not you personally. But but that kind of question immediately leads to his famous thought experiment about the the drowning child and the, and, and the suit. That's right. That's right. Or, uh, so what's ver- wrong with that? Yeah. So my favorite version, actually, of that is is the Italian leather shoes. Uh, oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right. So just to remind uh, our our uh, viewers of what we're talking about. So so Singer, who is a utilitarian, of course, um, uh, has, has brought up these these interesting thought experiment. He says, look, look, let's say let's say that you're walking by a little you know small river and you just bought these really expensive. Very nice uh, Italian leather shoes, and uh, and all of a sudden you see a child drowning, and the only way you can any the, the child can be saved is for you to just jump straight in and ruin your your leather shoes. You know, there's no time to take them off. There's no nobody else that can help. You know that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, would you do it? And of course, most people put in that situation would say, yes, of course I would do it. Just, what kind of a monster do you think I am that you know I prefer to save my leather shoes? Uh, to the drowning child, but then, of course, once as typical with these kind of thought experiments, once that the initial argument is conceded, initial analogy is conceded, now you got into a, yourself into a trap, because of course Singer turns around and says, "Ha! Well, then, it turns out every time you make a choice of a consumerist type, you know, every time you get your iPhone, uh, every time you buy, you know, you go to dinner." out uh, to a restaurant or whatever, almost, almost anything you do that it's not strict necessity, you are in fact condemning a child to death on the other side of the planet uh, because you could have used that money uh, to you know, say, send it over for you know, malaria uh, vaccination or, or what, you name it. And that's true. The problem is, of course, that the trap springs once you buy into the into the idea that the thought experiment actually gives you a reasonable analogy and i don't think it as a virtuatist i reject utilitarianism i don't think that's a reasonable analogy and the difference the 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 big disanalogy there is precisely between the fact that on the one hand you're faced with an immediate situation right there where you're the only person that can make a difference and in that case it really would be callous to say no i'm sorry i'm not gonna ruin my leather shoes. In the analogous situation, sort of the broader situation on the other hand, now you're talking about, a fairly, first of all, a much more distributed um, um, problem, right? So we have, we have, we do have people on the other side of the planet that are starving to death or they're, they have problems with disease and so on and so forth. But the causes of those are much more complicated and 
the solutions to those are much more complicated. For instance, one of the obvious responses to Peter Singer is like, actually, as it turns out, study after study shows that just giving money to charity isn't at all a, uh, the best way to, to, to help uh, other people. In fact, in some, kind, in some cases, it may actually harm. There's all sorts of studies that have been coming out recently, really clearly demonstrated that you know, you go, you go in, you give money to a charity, a charity come, goes, comes in with a perfectly reasonably sound, you know, intervention. And then, in fact, unintended consequences spring out all, the, all over and you turned out to actually have done much more damage uh, than, than, you, than, than you intended. So one of the reasons not to buy the analogy is precisely that I have, I have pretty good control over my leather shoes and the child drowning. I have next to no control over much more complex situations that involve, you know, political, social, economic uh, issues and, and complex organizations, bureaucracies, and so on and so forth. So that's one reason I think the analogy doesn't work. The other one is, well, hold on a second here. Do I really have a moral duty to make myself miserable, you know, in order to you know, strip myself of everything that, um, that I could do without, basically. So living, essentially going cynical, right? Yeah. Uh, cynical with the big C, not, not the small C. Um, becoming, becoming a cynic. I'm not sure that I do. Um, because you certainly do have that, that um, duty, I think, from a utilitarian perspective. And yes. I think that, that, that Singer is perfectly coherent when he, when he says that. And even though he himself doesn't live the life of a cynic, I mean, we're talked about that, that yes. also online, right? But to be frank, you know, I met Peter uh, a number of times and I know uh, what he actually does. To be frank, he actually does much more in that direction than a lot of other people who just talk about utilitarianism or talk about helping people and, and don't, you know, you know, like he gives something like 20 or 30 percent of his salary out. We just had him over a few months ago at City College for a, a philosophy day talk. He asked for a significant honorarium but the honorarium went straight to you know when when uh, in full to a to a charity so to be fair you know he's, he's trying to do his best although he's certainly not living the life of a cynic i mean you know he has a nice apartment actually it turns out that he lives only a, a couple of blocks yeah. from where I live, chelsea new yeah. york um yeah what's i guess i guess what's sort of been chafing about him is some of the very specific obligations that he has very forcefully said people ought to do um it turns out he does the opposite. Um, and then when confronted on it says, Oh, well, you know, I'm fallible. And you know, that's all fine and well, but not with somebody who's preaching. Right. Um, 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 and so that's why I, I find him very distasteful. Um, because, um, in my view, what I find is that the most moral people I know are the quietest, um, yeah. not the loudest. And when you're loud like that, you're asking for people to actually examine what you do. Um, the thing, the thing with his dying, with with the Alzheimer's mother, really was the one that really uh, pushed because he was he was preaching active euthanasia and he was preaching all this sort of stuff, and then it turns out he spent half a million dollars of some ridiculous amount of money on his mother's Alzheimer's care, and then when confronted with it by a journalist, he said, "Well, I guess I could have used that money for, I guess I could have spent the money more wisely," right. not acknowledging that he'd been in print hectoring people right, for doing precisely what he'd done. Um, and so I guess that's the only thing that sort of puts people off a little bit. Um, so let me, let me, in picking this up, let me ask you, um, because this is really the area where I want to push. Um, in one of these conversations you and I had, I said that it seems to me pretty clear that ethical values and obligations are not, are not, are not always overriding. 
And I thought in that conversation that you disagreed with that, that you think that ethical and moral considerations are always overriding. And I just wanted to first clarify that because if, if, if you do think that, then we really do have a serious disagreement. If not, then we'll see where it goes. Right. No, I, I don't think they're always overriding. Um, but I do think that part of our disagreement uh, may be about just what we mean by ethical considerations, right? So I think that it, what, what came out during you know, our online exchange, uh, I thought, um, but we can clarify this, is that I have, uh, from a virtual ethical perspective, I have a broader, pers- broader definition of what counts as ethical. For instance, if I remember correctly, at some point you brought up the example of, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I, I want to make sure that my friends and my family and people in my you know, congregation, whatever it is, um, can have a good time and can have, you know, can feel like I'm contributing locally and so on and so forth. And, and that, of course, does come as with a trade off as in terms of, you know, sending stuff to the other side of the world. Well, uh, that kind of behavior to me counts as ethical. Because, again, from a virtual ethical perspective, it's about your character and your behavior within the polis, right? Within, which means that you have, even though even the, the, the Stoics and the Cynics were cosmopolitan sort of as a general idea, meaning that they saw no reason in principle why a human being is better than another human being, uh, sort of other things considered, sorry, all things considered. The fact is that from a virtual ethical perspective, I think it's easier to argue that you have you know, you live in, in a particular place with particular people that depend on you much more than the rest of the planet does. And so I don't think there's anything wrong. And I know that utilitarians, on the other hand, and deontologists very strongly disagree with this. But I don't think there's anything wrong. Uh, and in fact, that there is something callous about, from a virtual ethical perspective, to say, well, I'm going to ignore my family, uh, uh, my friends, uh, you know, people that I interact with, including, you know, my colleagues, my students, so on and so forth. And I'm going to focus on people that I don't know on the other side of the world because they are more in need than these people. Well, more in need than less in, less in need is, is a relative matter. Uh, the fact is, you know, my daughter uh, counts on my help. You know, my partner counts on my help. Uh, my friends uh, count on my help. And, and those are ethically binding as far as I'm concerned. So if I do something... Um, you know, even not, nothing extraordinary, but just something that, you know, use time and resources to make those people feel more comfortable and those people feel like they're part of a community and that they have support and so on and so forth. I think actually that is an ethical, ethical choice uh, that is perfectly respectable. Um, that said, as a um, stoic, I actually do think that you also have, we also have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to ourselves. So this idea of sort of self-abnegation, it's not necessarily something that a virtual ethics would go for uh, because virtual ethics is, is about your flourishing in life. Yeah. Now, your flourishing in life does depend on being a productive member of a society. It does depend on helping others. So for a stock, there is no difference between helping yourself and helping the people that are around you because you, you, you are a social being and you depend on other people in that sense. But... Self-abnegation is not something that is a, a requirement of, of any sort from a virtual ethical perspective. So then, then however, it, you know, all of this, I think, is perfectly reasonable, but it, began, it, it, it begins to feel, I think, wishy-washy, right? It's like, well, so where do you draw the line? 
um, you know, what is it that that you that you think it's reasonable to sort of give up? And, you know, in terms of self, uh, you know, renouncing to certain things in order for, to help other people. And the answer is, I don't know. You're you're I don't think there is a, a, an equation there. I don't think there is a, uh, uh, you know, easy answer like a deontologist or a, or a utilitarian would have ready, uh, ready at hand. Um, it depends. It depends on, um, you know, just how miserable or how good you feel if you do certain things, just how much you're, the people that you uh, that you interact with depend on you and what does that mean in practical terms. And if you have a good character, if you're a decent person, you'll navigate your way through that. And and part of that, navigating that uh, uh, your way through that will also be from time to time, you will reflect. They say, no, I'm, I'm lucky. I live in a place like New York or right now Rome. I can afford to give some of my money uh, or some of my uh, time or whatever it is to people that I don't know in order to help them. And I do it, right? But how much and under what circumstances and all that, I think that's a personal decision that I'm not going to go and preach to people and say, oh, you're not doing enough. Um, and, and I'm not doing that not just because you know, then I, I don't want to be caught into this kind of singer situation where, you know, then I preach and then somebody else is, well, well what do I mean? What are you doing? I just don't think it's right to do so. Right. So if somebody asks me, right, if somebody says, look, I need help here. I need, I need a way to figure out. I need a, I need a way to sort of re uh, reset my moral compass. Do you think that this is a good way to do about, uh, to go about it? Do you think that this, you know, what are the alternatives? Then I'm perfectly happy to say, Hey, here's my experience. Here's my thinking as a philosopher. Here's my uh, reasoning based on a particular view of what ethics means. And it's fine, but I'm not going to go around telling people, Oh yeah, I'm sorry, but those, that iPhone you just bought, you just condemned to death, you know, a hundred people on the other side of the world. That seems like callous and, and, and preachy in a way that it's, to me, it's very distasteful. So you don't, you know, this is a very tricky position to articulate. I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying, it sounds to me like you're saying on the one hand, the ethical omnivorism that you've adopted is obligatory, (laughs) but then you're sort of saying, but it's not obligatory in the sense that I wouldn't no, ascribe no. that obligation to other people necessarily right. in the abstract, right? I mean, is right. no, no. So that's an interesting. That's a very. I'm glad you put it that way because I think that that actually can help uh, clarify even my own mind. Because when you know, part of the reason I asked, I, I, I enjoyed these discussions is actually it forces me to sort of clarify w- what I think, right? No, I would never say that my position is obligatory. Uh, or it makes demands of any sort on, on other people. I think the only obligation... Do you think do it makes demands on you? Is it obligatory on you? Are you doing it because it's obligatory on you? Oh, that's a good question. Can, I, can we set that aside? Yes, for a yes, of course. All right, so we'll go back to that in a second. Um, um, I don't think it makes demands on other people. I think the only demand that there is, from my perspective, on people is to be decent, to be a decent human being, okay? To... Uh, to treat other people well and to try to do a part for the general policy of, of humankind. That's the only thing that I think I can, I think that everybody should really try to do. And that can be un- fleshed out in a lot of different ways. Exactly. Okay. So it's perfectly reasonable for somebody to tell me, look, I don't feel like giving up my iPhone for, you know, charity. But on the other hand, here, I'm a, 
decent person because I'm doing these other things. I'm interacting with these people this way, or I'm spending my time, you know, I'm volunteering my time, or I'm doing a number of other things, an almost infinite number of things. One of the nice things about the human condition, and I think actually, again, one of the nice features, it's, all, it's, it's, all, it's often taken as a criticism, brought forth as a criticism of virtual ethics, but one of the nice features of virtual ethics is precisely that it doesn't have recipes. It's precisely that it's an acknowledgement of, look, there's many, many, many ways of flourishing, many, many ways of, of living a eudaimonic life. And there are many, many multiple dimensions to ethical behavior so that I can say, well, that sort of particular behavior taken in isolation may be unreasonable or unethical or debatable or whatever it is. But if I take the full person, right, and what, what his life or her life is and how she behaves in general, with other people and a number of circumstances, she probably comes out to be actually a better person than I am. And so just because I give up something or I do something that maybe she doesn't do, that doesn't make me a better person at all. Okay, so now I'm starting to, much to the dismay maybe of our audience, I'm starting to think that we don't disagree at all. Um, <laughs> um, because it sounds to me like what you're saying is that, look, um, because the obligation part of our lives can sort of be filled in a lot of different ways. You want to Sorry, just, if I, you want can to... I interrupt you for a second? So notice that I've been, you know, usually I drink a little bit of water, but I'm in Italy. This is beer. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking coffee to keep up with you. I can't. Um, um, Go ahead. Um, it sounds to me like you're saying that, look, you know, there's a lot of different ways to play this sort of morally positive role in the world. Right. People are obligated to play some play it in some such way, but right. they're not... All obligated to all play it in the same such way, and so and so, you you wouldn't you, you wouldn't say there's anything wrong with the person. And now I'm going to more describe myself, who really doesn't devote much moral energy um, to concerns about his eating, um, but does expend his moral energies in all sorts of other ways, um, sure. making the contribution a towards the things that he care that I care about, uh, and 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 with the people that I think I can have an impact on. And yeah. so it sounds to me like you really don't think it's a, I mean, it's obligatory in your framework, right? Yeah. You think that some such framework is obligatory of everyone simply because we're people. I mean, that's the sort of the basic that's right. Aristotelianism that's involved in this, right? right. Um, but you think it can be fleshed out in a lot, a lot of different ways. And so you don't think that any particular way is obligatory of everyone. I mean, within some reasonable, obviously not murdering, you know, people exactly. is, is obligatory of everybody. But, you know, we don't have to be that person. That, right, right. There are some things that obviously are, in fact, obligatory, like, yeah, not, not going around murdering people right. and like that, but I think that within, if we're talking about sort of the, the bell curve of distribution of, of common people, behaviors and, and sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that that is highly uh, multidimensional. And in fact, um, even though, I, as we've said several times now, uh, not only am I a virtual ethicist, but I, I consider I try to study and practice stoicism. I don't think stoicism is the the answer for everybody. It works for me. Right. You know, it resonates with me. Right. Uh, both culturally in terms of, and probably in terms of character, you know, sort of uh, uh, temperamentally. But if if your uh, view is more Epicurean, and of course I mean Epicurean not in the sense of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but in the actual Epicurean, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, or or you are more Aristotelian, or or more, or if you want to go cynic, hey, go ahead, go cynic. Um, it's fine, as long as we realize that uh, the only the only demand, I think, that is reasonable to make is to realize that we are 
social beings that are interdependent on other such beings and that the flourishing life for us means a flourishing life for our society. Yeah, yeah. And so that you have an obligation to do things, something, yeah. right? For, set, for, for improving your society. I think really, if you, wanna, if you really want to reduce it to the minimum common denominator is, as long as you're doing something, whatever it is. Be a socially positive force. Yeah. You're socially yeah. positive. You're, yeah. pro -so you're pro-social in some way. Yeah. Then I think uh, I, I'm, I don't have anything else to add. You know, you want to do it this way? Fine. Yeah. Uh, if you yeah. want to do it that other way, good. Yeah. Okay. So that that that. This is really actually lovely in terms of the the, the cleanness of the way this is um, develop, uh, sort of emerging. The last sort of thing I want to ask sort of will pull us out to a broader perspective, and that is the ethical life is only one part of the larger eudaimonic life, right? In other words, you know, Aristotle famously um, uh, just characterizes eudaimonia both in term uh, in terms of multiple. Uh, let's call them valences, right? I mean, there yes. is the dimension of civic and moral virtue. There yes. is the dimension of theoria or contemplation, which is a not a moral, which is the, not a moral life, but an intellectual one. Uh, and then there are the various um, uh, 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 flourishings with respect to what we call craft or techne. Um, and these are all painted as part of a broader picture of eudaimonism, that is, of what it is to flourish as a human being. Right. And I guess that maybe the one maybe last place where there might be some disagreement between us, although my, my hopes are shrinking, um, <laughs> um, it seems like we only fight online. We never fight when we actually see each other, which tells you something about online yes. interaction. Right? Yes, I think it does. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, yeah. um, and that is the relative uh, within the broader eudaimonist palette. Does the moral, ethical, civic, uh, virtu virtu virtuous dimension have dominance over the others? I, I, what I want to say is that they all are, are jockeying with one another and that there is no principled way to advance one over the other, that in a sense all of them are required to fully flourish and that which ones dominate not only vary from person to person but may vary within a person's life time. from yeah. time to time. And so I'm wondering if you might answer the, that broader question because to me, for example, um, the aesthetic dimension is very important. And um, so one of the reasons I simply won't go for this sort of ethical omnivorism is there's simply too much um, cuisine that I, that not only that I love, but I, that I think is really valuable. I mean, I, I do think of this as not only expressions of culture, but expressions of uh, artistic values. Right. Um, and so how do you see within the broader eudaimonist template the relative place of the moral life to all the other ways in which we flourish. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And uh, first of all, it, it, it may vary depending on which eudaimonist philosophy you adopt, right? So I think that Aristotelianism tends to be uh, the most flexible. The most multifaceted in terms yes. of the pieces right. that are in the eudaimonist. It yeah. is definitely the most multifaceted and the most flexible in terms of balance between the two piece, the, the pieces. The cynics are at the opposite extreme, right. if you will, right? Yeah, uh, they go for, you know, basically, as I said, for no no property, no, you know, nothing. It's, yeah. it's like... Um, what do you think? All, and, well, I, I'm in between because as a, as a practicing Stoic, uh, I'm some and literally in between the Aristotelians and the Cynics. I mean, that's that's how Stoicism actually placed itself, right? So for a Stoic, 
virtue um, uh, uh, in terms of specifically in terms of the four fundamental virtues: uh, practical wisdom, um, you know, courage, justice, and um, and um, uh, self-control, or more general temperance. Uh, those are actually overriding. Those are the ones that you always want to keep in mind. No could, you list, what, could you list them again? I just yeah. So it's practical wisdom, which of course yeah. we can have a whole discussion about what that means exactly. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I think I generally understanding as the ability to navigate complex situations in the real world in the best possible way, the morally best way, the morally best way. The yes, the morally best way. Okay. That's right. Go on. Um, so practical wisdom, courage which doesn't mean necessarily or only physical courage. In fact, it's often it's a courage of, courage of speaking up when you need to or you know, standing your ground when you need to and that sort of stuff. Or, or simply making decisions that are not easy, period. Um, uh, the third one is uh, self-control, or, or uh, meaning trying not to go to excess in anything. Um, uh, sort of, and, and the fourth one is justice. And by justice... The Stoics didn't mean what we mean today, you know, like social justice, that kind of thing. I mean, it's compatible with an idea of social justice, but it's really justice as in you treat other people justly. You remember, it's always about interactions with people, direct interaction with people. This is not a general theory of social justice, just a a question of, you know, you want to treat people uh, uh, as you would like to to be treated, essentially, you know, fairly and so on and so forth. Now, for a Stoic, those four are, in fact, they are overriding. They are overriding. And everything else, like, let's say, my doing philosophy, uh, you know, or my doing these conversations with you, or my drinking a nice beer, uh, or going tonight for a nice, really nice pizza, uh, and so on and so forth, those are all preferred indifference. Meaning that if I can do them, I do them, as long as they don't trade off with my virtues. But how could could they not trade off, given that, if those other things are really overriding, they could be served by the money and time and effort that you spend on right. your wine yeah. and your and your wine and your pizza and everything else. Right. I think that the the key word there is overriding, and and this may have created some of the problem actually during our online discussion. Um, I don't think the Stoics and even some other uh, virtuosos see the question quite in terms of overriding as in terms of compromising. So they don't mean overriding the way a singerite would. Exactly. So right. could you explain so, that? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to try. And one, one of the, the best way, actually, um, um, I discovered of explaining this uh, came from one of the readers of one of my blogs, the, the howtobeastoic.org blog. Uh, one of the readers, and unfortunately, I don't remember his name uh, also because he uses you know, one of these handles, so I don't yeah. actually know his name. But, um, but maybe we can, uh, I'm sure we can find the link to the specific comment that I'm about to, to make so that we can, we can do it, uh, we can post it. Um, so what he said, he was trying himself to sort of get, it, get a hold of this idea of the virtues are fundamental, but at the same time you got these preferred indifference. You know, what does that mean? Turns out he's an economist or somebody who actually studies economic theories. And he says, ah, wait a minute, economists have something like that. And they call it, um, um, a, a, uh, there's a term for it that has to do with, with um, ranking preferences in a way that are incommensurable. Okay. Um, so they say, so, there are, so you have a, a group of preferences, and then you have a B group of preferences, and then you have, let's say, a C group of preferences. Within each group, you can trade off. 
but across groups, you don't. So let's say, for instance, let me give an example that has got nothing to do with eudaimonia or, 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 or stoicism. Let's say that my preference, my A preference is to be alive and healthy, okay? Um, my B preference, part of my B preference is, is eating a pizza, okay? Now, having an A preference means that uh, you can eat a pizza as long as it doesn't put in jeopardy your health uh, in the long term or your life, right? Um, so I prefer a pizza over, let's say, uh, I don't know, a, a, a steak or something like that. So within the B group, I have preferences, and those preferences can be traded off. But those preferences cannot be traded off against group A. Uh, similarly, in the case of, um, and there's a term that I'll find out and we'll, we'll, post, we'll post for, the, there's a specific term about, about this. What that, by the way, the reason this analogy struck me as powerful is because this is actually one of the, one of the consequences in economic theory um, of the fact that people have these kind of unrankable preferences is that you cannot come up with a single maximization function, right? Mm. You cannot say, which is a staple of classical economics, that you, know, you, all, you maximize whatever function you define in terms of consumer preferences. Is it, if it turns out, and it does turn out according to behavioral economics, that people have preferences that are unrankable, that are not compatible with each other, they're, they're just two different, kind, two different games, basically, you cannot compare them, then there is no single maximization function that you can possibly deploy from an economic perspective. So in terms of what we're going back to what we're talking about is the thing is this. It's not that everything I do has to deploy courage and wisdom and, and, and self-control and, and justice. Right. Is that everything that, do, that I do doesn't have to contradict those things. So if in order to... Um, uh, buy my iPhone to go back to the, the old mm -hmm. example, right? Um, if that is actually an example of, of losing self-control, because in fact, I'm spending much more than I should in terms of my own financial, you know, uh, condition. Let's, let's say I couldn't really afford, let me give a better example, uh, Apple Watch, right? Mm -hmm. I have an Apple Watch here. It's a basic model, however, because it's a fairly expensive gadget, but this is something that I can easily afford with my salary as university professor. Had I decided, however, to buy, let's say, the top of the line model, the gold Apple Watch, right? I could. I could afford it. I have that kind of money. But now that decision will really trade off in a gigantic way. Right. You know, it would have a, a major impact. So it would qualify as a loss of self-control. Okay, so 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 it sounds to me though like the only re the only way the only way that this doesn't turn into a sort of a singerite position that is where I say to you, look, you know, um, you are allowing a B concern to override an A concern because the six hundred dollars you spent on that iPhone uh, that I that Apple Watch could have been spent on justice, could have been spent on on um, uh, helping a poor person or saving someone or the only way I see this not sliding into a kind of singerism or forcing you into a kind of singerism is to is like the term singerism <laughs> right, is precisely the much looser conception of duty that you have in other words the moral the moral you're saying that in other words your view is that the more our moral obligation 
is to do some good, but it's not to always do good all the time. In other, in other right. words, in other words, the only way that this works is if you take the whole package. You also have to accept, you know, you have to have a much more eudaimonist conception of obligation. You can't have because otherwise it does. I mean, the singer, the singer is right, right? I mean, that that for sure. Yeah, uh, with that, you are. I think you're completely correct with two caveats, which I think are important. Uh, the first one is, remember, unfortunately, what's, what happens in a lot of these discussions is that we use terms that uh, have been historically interpreted and are interpreted by people differently, right? So uh, so when I say, to go back to our, the beginning of our discussion, when we're talking about ethics, you know, it's one thing if by ethics you mean the study of right and wrong, and it's a completely different thing is by, if by ethics you mean uh, the study of how to live a good life. That yeah. Those are very different. You know, you can use the same term and people yeah, yeah, do yeah. use the same term, but they're not the same thing at all. The same goes in this particular case with justice. Remember my uh, note before that justice from a uh, virtual not just a stoic perspective, but the virtual perspective in general, uh, doesn't have much to do with what we today consider this, this, this God's eye view of justice, right? When we, when we think of justice today, we mean society-wide, God's eye view, social justice kind of thing. Yeah, That's yeah. not what eudaimonic uh, philosophies mean by it. They simply mean the way you relate to people you actually relate to, yeah, right? Yeah, you yeah. treat them in a certain way. So no, I don't think that buying my watch basic model actually in, uh, uh, you know, infringes on justice in that sense. It, that it, it definitely does infringe on justice, in the, in the in singerite the, sense. In the singerite sense. Yeah, yeah. But there, and there, here comes the second caveat, there I think the, the, the move really is simply to turn things around uh, on the singerites. Yeah. Uh, and that is, you know, uh, we started this discussion by mentioning his thought experiment, right? One of the things that I've become more and more skeptical of uh, once I started getting used, uh, getting getting interested in, in virtual ethics, is this idea of thought experiments, yeah, especially ethics, yeah, especially yeah. because these are completely ideal situations, and under which, of course, you in which you have, you have complete control. They're very simplistic, first of all, uh, and then you have complete control of what's going on. And yeah. and you say, well, sure, if you put it that way, fine. But the the fact is, why would you put it that way? Because the real world is not like that. And proof that the real world is not like that is that I don't know any utilitarian or any singerite who comes even close to that ideal. Yeah. Right? So you can simply turn around the table on them and say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah. You know, you're, you're telling me that we all should be doing this, but you're not even close to that, right. to, that, to, that, to that level. And frankly, as you were saying earlier, the fact that you say, well, but I'm just a human being, you know, it's a poor excuse. Um, I can use, on the other hand, from a virtual ethical perspective, I can use the 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 move I can make the move of I am a human being, and and being a human being nah, that doesn't sound very very nicely but anyway I know what you mean yeah yeah right so being a human a human basically means that I do have to balance for my own sake right behaviors and activities that are good for my own personal flourishing with behaviors and activities that are good for the flourishing of the polis yeah, right? yeah. that's what it means to take seriously human nature and to say look you know otherwise you could just 
you're just going to either be an hypocrite or you live a miserable life. Or you're going to be what Susan Wolf calls a moral saint. Um, um, and sure. I think and I think that essay is very strong in explaining why moral saints are not actually something that anybody really likes or wants. Yeah. Um, um, so so it's not, I mean, it sounds to me like the main difference between you and I is that we're both eudaimonists, but your your eudaimonism is more of the stoical and mine is more of the Aristotelian variety such that you do privilege um, the moral sphere, um, but not in the way that a Singerite does. In other words, it's overriding, but in a very qualified sense and one that doesn't entail these sorts of very extreme forms of life, um, that all of this or none of that or or um, the, the last just challenge I would put. Oh, uh, by the way, yeah, just go ahead. term. Lexicographical uh, preferences. Lexicographical um, preferences. The reason they call it the reason economists call them lexicographical. That's so weird. Why? Why lexicographical? Because it, remember, I said A group, B group, C group. Uh, the the original uh, the origin of the term actually goes to uh, alphabet uh, alphabetizing things. Yeah. So if you put all books in that you have into the A category, and then then the other ones into a B category, and so on and so forth, you don't mix them. You, you know, within them, you get the different categories. So it's a lexicographical ordering, meaning that there is the A list, and then there is the B list, and then there is the C list. And frankly, if you think about it, maybe not not as strictly, but we all do this, right? We all uh, rank things, and we say, look, if if I can afford it, I'm gonna go, let's say, on a vacation. Yeah. But I'm not going to starve my family in order to go to a vacation. Right, right, right. right. So that's because not starving your family is A-level right. commitment. And, you know, doing a vacation is a C-level commitment. Right. That sort of stuff. Right. Okay, so the last thing, um, um, the very last thing. Um, so we, we probably differ in the sense that you see a sort of hierarchy within the elements of a eudaimonist picture of, 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 of flourishing. And I'm more inclined to see them as jockeying for position and not having any sort of uh, a priori uh, ordering. Um, um, let me just offer one reason for my maybe thinking that I'm right about that and you're not. Um, and you can tell me what you think about it. And it okay. seems to me like the elephant in the room are prudential values. In other mm -hmm. words, In other words, it seems to me that as a matter of fact, if you actually examine people's behavior, Matters of prudential value are overwhelmingly overriding in the yeah. sense that every single day we make a thousand decisions that are in service of what are ultimately prudential values, whether matters of time, matters of money, matters of convenience, matters of uh, effort, matters of um, all. And, and these can even be minute things. But when you add them all up, it seems to me that on a daily basis, they are, in fact, the over, overriding consideration. Right? And on a view that takes there to be this sort of hierarchy with ethical consideration at the top, it seems to me that either you have to sort of deny this, which I don't see how you can, or you have to evoke some kind of systemic fallibility, right? right. or you have to sort of almost adopt a religious view of vision in which this is a sort of an unattainable ideal, but an ideal nonetheless. Now, why do you think that that's not a reason for thinking that there isn't a hierarchy, but rather um, there's just a whole mess of values that we have right. to figure out where they, what, where they all fit together and how, which ones to obey on any given day. Right. So, so th that's a very good question. I have, I have two answers. One is the standard stoic answer, which is not going to be mine as it turns out. Okay. But, 
but it, the standard Stoic answer is, well, actually, as it turns out, the Stoics did think there was a, an, an ideal. They call it the sage, right? So sagehood. Um, they thought it was attainable, but that there are very few people that actually get to the level. You know, Socrates is the classic example. Um, and that the reason you want to, the, the, the reason those sages, even though very few people get to that point, play a crucial role is because it's good to have role models. It's good to say, look, yeah, I'm a fallible human being, but I have a model. I have right. something that I'm striving for, right? As long as, and that's a crucial difference, as long as the ideal, however you define it, is at least in principle possible. That's a right. major difference, for instance, between the Stoics and Christianity. And Christians, yeah, right, right. Christianity, right? right. Because there, the ideal is a God. And it's impossible, right? Yeah. It's yeah. possible, right? So, so that would be one way to answer it. But my way to answer it, even, even still within the Stoic perspective, is, is, is different. Let me give you an example. It's focused on one of the four virtues that I mentioned earlier, justice. Because, uh, simply because it's the easier, uh, easiest, I think, to make an example, mm -hmm. uh, to use that one as an, as an example. So you were saying, you know, there, there's all sorts of decisions that we make, uh, practical decisions that have, you know, that seem to either, either globally, so cumulatively, or individually sometimes even overwrite. Um, every so other that, every other consideration every other consideration yeah. right but 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 that's one that's i think still if you're thinking almost in a sort of singarian way that's definitely true but if you think about it this way so again the the virtue uh, uh ethical uh, characteristic of justice remember is not this overarching justice right it's this justice in the way in which you relate to people mm -hmm. okay so i relate to people every day like most of us do, right? And these people include my students, my colleagues, my partner, my family, you know, strangers in the streets, the people that I go to the grocery store and so on and so forth. Honestly, I don't want to sound sort of pretentious, but I don't think that most of the time any of my interactions with these people compromises my virtue of justice because I try to be mindful as much as it is uh, – possible that every time that I interact with other people, mm -hmm. I try to treat them fairly in, in what, what a stoic would consider to be a just way. I don't find myself having to trade off too often um, in that area. And when I do, it's usually my fault. So one of the things that sometimes happen is that, you know, somebody just, you know, makes me upset because they're saying something that I, I feel it's, ridiculously, you know, untenable and so on and so forth, or they're behaving rudely or something like that. And in those cases, I may lose my patient and not treat them as I would like to treat them, right? But then I, I think about it and I go to my evening meditation. I say, you know, what was so bad after all in their, in their behavior? They were mistaken. They, they engaged in a bad behavior. But did you really have to get upset about it? Did you really have to, you know, treat them badly? Could, couldn't you just have ignored them? Or could you just have said, okay, if that's the way you feel, um, I think you're mistaken and, and move on, right? So I don't find myself trading off too much, if at all. Let, me, that let me ask you. Okay, so I, I think I see where you're going with this. I mean, so is essentially what you're saying is, look, you don't deny all the prudential considerations that, I, that I'm saying people make every day. What right. you're denying is that those override moral values. In other words, what you're saying is, look, they only override moral values if what you mean by moral values is something singerite, right? Correct. Right? Some exactly. abstract notion that I shouldn't be doing this, I should be giving my money to the poor, I shouldn't be. But right. they don't override 
they're not overriding a moral. If anything, you might argue on a stone view that they're constitutive of your moral relations exactly. because of all the prudential considerations that have to go into making things work around exactly. you. Um, exactly. And that's the sense in which it's a broader view of the ethical life. It includes the prudential considerations and it includes... Yeah. Is that what you're essentially... I, I, I am saying exactly that. Thank you for helping me uh, fleshing it out. And in that sense, uh, there really is not that much of a difference, I must say, between an Aristotelian and a Stoic. It's more how they categorize, what they call the yeah. categories. It's not so much a difference in effect. And it's a question of emphasis. You know, I mean, again, there's, there's, the emphasis goes along a continuum where the Aristotelian is on one end, the Stoic is in the middle, the Cynics is on the other end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, yes, you're right. It's what, what a Singerite would call a prudential consideration and, and distinguish it sharply from an ethical consideration. Right. For a virtual ethicist, it's all one big you mess. Can't, you can't distinguish them. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Beauty of virtuetics is that I agree several times. This is the kind of thing that once you explain it to a utilitarian, let's say, or a deontologist, say, ah, that's a major flaw of virtuetics. Of course, there is a distinction between yeah, those, yeah. right? But to me, that's the beauty of virtuetics. Yeah, it's a reflection. Yeah. It's it's taking seriously the fact that human life is messy, yeah. complex, yeah. multidimensional, and difficult to navigate. Yeah. So it's all one big yeah. bunch. It's justice in the world, not justice right. abstractly conceived. Justice right. in the world requires that all sorts of prudential values be served, as well as other sorts of values. Uh, I, I agree with that. Yeah, that's, that's where the wisdom comes in, right? Wisdom, practical wisdom means that you balance things right. in a way that all in all, you're making a contribution to your to your polis, it may not be in that particular yeah. direction or that particular direction, but all in all, you're making the world a better place for yourself and for the people that are around you. And that's ultimately the only duty that I think we have if we want to, if we want to talk about duty. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sophia viewers, I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, <laughs> Matsumo and I have found the consensus uh, in the bat in the war. Uh, maybe we should just not talk to each other in, t in print online. <laughs> well, that, that's one lesson. But the other one is, you know, as you know I, I started having a collection of, uh, of uh, philosophical tattoos at one point in, on, on, on one of our shows. I showed my... The stoic my, tattoo, yeah. Right? Uh, but I have another one here that I can't show because I would have to get, say, my naked to do so. Um, it's it's a, simply a phi, the letter for, the Greek letter for philosophy, right? And it has a, a quote that is attributed, although there's actually some doubt, to David Hume. But the quote itself, whether Hume said it or not, or wrote it or not, it doesn't matter. I think it's good. And uh, the quote says, uh, truth springs from argument amongst friends. Hmm. And I think this is what is happening here. Right. If we hadn't had the fight, we wouldn't have done a show on it, and then we wouldn't have. <laughs> and if we're, not, if we're not friends and, 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 and yeah. sort of willing to listen to each other and say, oh, wait, that's what he means. Well, maybe that's not that different from what I mean. And even if it is, okay, but it's a reason. It's a reasonable position. Uh, I mean, that's what makes these this, this, this discussions interesting and productive. I certainly for me. I I, I don't know for yeah. you. If no, listening. absolutely, absolutely. For me. No, this is my preferred way of doing philosophy. Um, 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 interlocution, where you can see the person, and and uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Massimo, this was wonderful. Um, I'm really, really appreciative. I know this is not so easy for you to set up. Um, and I know uh, you, we, uh, please thank your brother for Thanks allowing you. me to impose on him. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner. Don't thank be you. too ethical about yeah, it. Right. <laughs> You're in wrong, for God's sake. Um, and um, just a, a little heads up, um, and advertise this other project of yours. 
Massimo yeah. is doing something pretty unprecedented. He is right now on his on his uh, web web blog, um, um, Plato's Footnote. He has begun process of publishing in serial form an entire book that he wrote on progress in philosophy. Yep. And um, Sophia viewers should be aware, and I think will will like the fact that we are going to do several programs on this once enough of it's been published that 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 I have substantial questions to ask and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and so um, that's something to look forward to uh, as well. Uh, and we'll probably do at least one of those while you're still in Italy, I gather. Yeah, if this ar- if this arrangement is still available to you. Yep. Yes, it is. And um, enjoy Rome, Massimo. All right. Thank you, my friend. Take care. <laughs> Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.